Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. Uh, this time we'll be talking some actual tennis because uh, we had some last week and there's a couple of big weeks, big tournaments coming up. And uh, helping me unpack the proceedings uh, is Nick Lester making his return to the podcast after more than a year. Very happy to be speaking to Nick, who is based out of London. So this is a Zoom call. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thanks, Saqib. How are you doing? I'm doing as well as I can. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good, thanks. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I've been like a broken record, but uh, actually, you know, uh, on the show when said there was no tennis, we were doing these uh, retro live shows talking about the years uh, from the past in the tennis world. But now we are actually going to be talking about tennis. But before we get to that, uh, how, how have you been in this uh, pandemic? How have you dealt with this? Because this is such a new for everyone. And this is also your profession, you know, you call matches. And you haven't done that in five months. So what's that space been like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's the space purely from a very personal point of view has been filled by the fact that we actually had twins in March. So my life has been uh, full on without being full on, if that makes any sense. It's been sort of slowed down from a work perspective, but very much the pace has picked up from a personal level. Um, So that's filled a lot of time. In terms of the sort of lack of work, um, you know, obviously it has been a challenge. It's been a challenge for everyone in, in the industry. You know, you included it. We've all sort of been looking and scratching our heads as to when it's going to restart. The logistics of, of tennis being as it is in terms of just, you know, the global nature of the game has been so fun to watch that evolve over the, the last sort of 20 years. But obviously now it, it created a lot of headaches because you, you have a number of players coming from different parts of the world. So... Purely from a personal point of view, um, the, the break from a very selfish perspective probably came at not a bad time for me. Uh, but I'm certainly glad that things are, things are up and running now. And, and you know, it's, it's allowed, I, I, I kind of look at it from the perspective, it's allowed tennis a free run. Uh, you know, people to, to sort of produce different brands of tennis, different forms of tennis. They've, they've had a blank piece of paper, a blank canvas to work with um, in this period of time. And... Uh, Obviously, protocols have had to be followed, but we've seen some innovations and some different things that, that um, you know, potentially have raised a few eyebrows, I think. No, absolutely. First of all, official congratulations uh, on the good news you shared here. Thank uh, you. And, uh, yeah, so this kind of did work out for you in that regard. But uh, but you did say, you know, this, the, there was, there was, everyone's looking for work. Uh, to come around and uh, how has this impacted the tennis industry? I mean, you've been the voice of some of the leading tennis tournaments through some leading networks, but has this impacted some of, you know, your friends, your colleagues who work in tennis? Because USTA laid off some people a while back. NBC Sports had to make some cuts because of uh, no Olympics. So I'm sure this is just widespread all over the world in every sport, every discipline. Uh, Speak... uh, uh, on behalf of tennis, at least what you know and who and how people were impacted, who were impacted yeah, by this. For sure. I mean, it's had a huge impact on on certainly within my business in terms of the broadcast industry, uh, certainly self-employed, um, the self-employed, the freelancers, the, the gig community, as we like to know it over here, have all you know been very much left out on the limb. It, clearly, I think it depends which country you come from in terms of how much government's uh, help you've had, because some governments have stepped in and helped, others have, have done less so. So, you know, we were fortunate over here, we had a little bit of help. Um, but 
you know, when you've got no tennis to commentate on, it's obvious that the impact is going to be significant. Um, others, you know, there's been a lot of, I've got a lot of colleagues uh, who work behind the scenes, directors, producers, they've all looked for different jobs. They've all been doing different things during the sort of March, April, May, June period, trying to get themselves out there, delivery driving, uh, whatever it is you want to gardening. I've got some colleagues some gardening work. So, you know, just trying to find a way to make a living because obviously when you're, when your living's been wiped out, um, you know, and you've got a family to support, it becomes very, very difficult. So I think we're just all glad that there, there is tennis up and running now. Obviously, there are challenges still with travel, which is, which is not easy. Um, but it has to be, you know, you have to take, I think there are certainly in my industry, there are people that are having to take risks in terms of just whether they weigh it up, if it's the right thing to do. Uh, in some ways, they're kind of forced, forced to go into the States now and, and, and get out there and, and, and you know, get earning again. Yeah, and like you said, travel is going to be such a big component. And we always say tennis is so global. We take this element so granted every week. Uh, action moves not only countries; it moves to different continents in a very you know periodic you know way. The calendar is set, and now other sports like cricket in the UK, the Pakistan team came two and a half months prior to to the Test series, but tennis players don't have that luxury. They have to make a choice whether to play French Open or U.S. Open, which never has been the case. So yeah, travel is going to be such a huge element here, and uh, let, let, let's see, let's see how this uh, you know how this proceeds. Uh, hopefully, you know we we actually do get some tennis. But uh, sticking to the preparation for a commentator's uh, point of view, when you came to the podcast it was three years ago, I think uh, you introduced me to Tennis Abstract that you rely on some of the data they provide. So mm. what are you doing? Because there's no actual tennis that preceded the work in Lexington and that will precede the men's work you're going to be doing for Cincinnati. So what data are you going to be checking? Something that's five months old? How do you prepare, you know, when you're going to be calling these matches next week? Well, I think the first thing, first thing I'll try and do is trying to establish what players have been doing over the course of lockdown uh, and over the period of the last three months, how much they have been able to compete. Because let's face it, there have been there has been competition out there. The FFT in France put on a uh, a big event for a couple of weeks. We know about the UTS. We know about the Battle of Brits. There have been a number of events across the world. In fact, in America, as you well know, they pretty much started competing back in April. So you know, all behind closed doors, pretty much. So I, I don't think to be honest players have necessarily lacked for opportunity in terms of matches so we can always get that data in terms of results that's that's all freely available to us I think in the big picture um, fitness wise obviously you know it's very hard for us to know exactly what players have been doing fitness wise um, especially when we're not on site you know we, a lot of my commentary will be done remotely for the foreseeable future that's one thing that will change so therefore um, I'm relying on contacts here and there but it's very difficult in order for us to get the act information in terms of what players have been in physically over the period of lockdown um i think to, to answer your question specifically about in terms of data you know we obviously have things to work with for the first two or three months of the season we look we tend to look back through the years as well you know if i'm talking specifically about hawkeye data which has become a very um a very key component of what we do in terms of analyzing tennis matches trying to dig deeper hawkeye has data going back for five six years so that's not you know, if I'm if I'm watching a match at the U.S. Open in the first or second round, I'm, and I'm getting some data from Hawkeye, which I will be doing, uh, I'll be able to compare that to to 12 months ago, 18 months ago, or, or over the course of the season. So, you know, things like 
you know, simple things like spin rates, pace off the ground, uh, contact points, all, all these sorts of different things that we can try and dip into that we feel obviously have a relevance. So that will always be there. Um, in terms of research, nothing really changes from, from our point of view. I think it's just trying to establish, you know, trying to establish which, how much a player has been able to compete. Because I think if there's one thing we have seen um, in the first couple of weeks of the year, specifically with Fiona Ferro winning in Palermo, she'd won 10 matches coming in, uh, playing in the, the, the circuit in the FFT. So that undoubtedly had a benefit for her. And then we saw Jennifer Brady winning in Lexington, who played world team tennis. She'd had some matches in Charleston as well. So the players that have obviously had have had the chance to play in these exhibitions um i think have to have had a a slightly better a slightly greater advantage going into the next couple of weeks no absolutely and and you're absolutely right i mean i was not questioning the lack of data that's going to be available i meant more data to judge current form and you did say there has been uh, numerous behind the closed doors you know uh matches that have taken place in the last few months so that's going to be a good indicator So uh, Lexington, you called uh, the whole week. uh, So Mm. walk us through uh, overall the non-tennis, like how the environment was set up and it was behind closed doors. What have you heard, uh, you know, in the biosecure environment, how happy the players were, and then we can talk about the actual tennis. I mean, listen, I think it's very hard for us to appreciate, and I saw this firsthand at the Battle of the Brits, how much work goes in behind the scenes to ensuring that everyone is working in a safe environment. I mean, just to give you an example, the Battle of the Brits, before we talk about Lexington, they employed the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association, employed numerous people at Roehampton, which is the National Tennis Centre, in order to make sure that everyone is keeping a safe distance apart. They had two or three full-time staff working 13, 14 hours a day there at the National Tennis Centre during the Battle of the Brits to ensure that everyone is meeting the required safety protocols. So, I think we have to understand just how hard these organizations are working right now in order to get these tennis players competing again. And I don't know if I'm only assuming that tennis players are appreciating the efforts, but there's a lot that's going in Sakib right now to just getting these events on. You know, we talk about Lexington, Palermo. These events aren't making any money right now. Again, I don't know the exact financial figures, but everything I understand and everything I can gather is these events are surviving right now. They are just about breaking even, if that. Um, But they are doing their best in order to try and allow players to compete and then hopefully to build something for coming years. So it's very difficult. Um, You know, (laughs) obviously from a player perspective, you are reliant on players. You are, you are leaning. The players have to be following the protocols. They have to be following the rules stringently. And this is what we will find out during the US Open, obviously, to make sure that players um, are doing exactly as they're told because you are basically, to excuse the pun, putting the ball in their court. You're asking them um, to conform, to conform. And obviously, uh, that presents its own challenges. So I think Lexington went off really well. Um, the event was fantastic. The, the, the top seed tennis club, um, uh, again, from everything I'm told and everything I understand about it, is a fantastic facility. They have great people there. They were always very, very keen to put on a professional tournament anyway. Uh, Octagon, they actually, I think the story is that Octagon actually had um, a client. One of their clients was playing an exhibition at the club about four or five weeks um, before the tournament and suggested that actually this facility, when they knew the City Open couldn't take place, they suggested that this facility could well 
you know, get something going within the month. And that's exactly what they did. So everything I hear about it was, was very smooth. It, it, is, it is strange not having fans in the crowd. I think, you know, if I'm talking purely from a commentary point of view, it is a little unique to sort of watch tennis without fans in Palermo. We had a few, so that was nice. But, you know, it's just a very different environment and a very different atmosphere. But uh, I think all in all, I think the efforts that are going in um, from everybody, everyone's trying to pull together to get professional tennis up and running. Uh, it's not easy, but but uh, as I say, I think we need to we need to sort of give a lot of credit to people that are putting themselves out there and and just facilitating the return of tennis, which is not an easy thing. No, it's not, and and let's uh, let's hope it stays uh, as planned, safe, and you know we don't have uh, uh, more cases. And like you said, you know the biosecure environment, a lot of work has gone into this, and hopefully the execution stays to plan. So the actual tennis, there are a lot of big names. Uh, Serena played Venus, you know that can be you know the best start for tennis. Mm. And then Coco Gauff was there, Azarenka was there, Sabalenka was there. Jennifer Brady wins it all in the end. So talk about mm. the actual tennis. What uh, were your expectations when you were calling these matches and, and how sharp were the players? Uh, did, did anyone look rusty? I mean, unpack it any way, any angle from you want. So because you watched pretty much the whole week. Well, I'll start with Jennifer Brady. I mean, I remember sacking three or four years ago being at Wimbledon. It may have even been two years ago, actually. And I talked to Stephen Huss, who was obviously the former Wimbledon champion. And he was working with Jennifer Brady at the time. And he said to me, you watch Jennifer Brady in a few years' time because at the moment she is underachieving and she has a lot of potential. And that stuck with me that day. And obviously this year, I think we've seen a completely different Jennifer Brady. Uh, She's lost a lot of weight. She's slimmed down a lot. She's a completely different, I mean, in terms of physicality, she's a completely different athlete to what she was before. Um, she has uh, one of the best serves in women's tennis uh, and in lively conditions in America, that obviously suits. Her forehand is able to dominate from most parts of the court. So um, it's been great to see her play well. I thought actually the level of tennis was was pretty high. Shelby Rogers, the Shelby Rogers Serena Williams match was a, of a decent level. I think one thing you probably do see now on the return to tour initially is there are fluctuations within matches. So it's not necessarily a sustained sort of hour and a half, two hours of high quality. I think for the most part there are periods in matches where it does go off a little bit, and maybe that's to do with the physicality because players haven't obviously built up the the physical strength, the match practice to to be able to go out and, and sort of do two solid good hours. So that's an issue uh, that I think we'll see improve over time. But, you know, I always say, Sakib, that I think you could probably make a case that we see on a normal year some of the best tennis of the year being played at the start of the season. In January, I always feel like the Australian Open produces some of the best tennis in the year. And I think one of the reasons for that is players are so hungry, they're so fresh, they're kind of chomping at the bit, they've had two months off. And I, I sort of have a sense that it might be a similar case over the next few weeks, I think clearly the, the lack of fans is going to be an interesting aspect to it, how that sort of how that impacts on the on the players, on the tennis. But I think in general, I think overall the tennis was, was of a, a good standard. Um, uh, certainly Jennifer Brady was of a very high standard. Um, uh, Shelby Rogers, likewise, you know, good to see her back playing some tennis. But but I think, yeah, I think it was good. I think there are going to be fluctuations at the moment as before as players get to play more matches, then they'll they'll build up, as I say, the match match the match fitness, which is key. Uh, but I think overall, you know, all things considered, I think it was a decent start. And and you mentioned the lack of fans from a commentator's point of view, and also applies to the players. Especially, it works both ways in my view for uh, 
especially the stars, Serena's, the Novaks, the Rafas, they just used to play in front of packed stadium, packed arenas all over the globe. And a lot of times the crowd pulls them out of these matches where they're struggling because, you know, the stars are used to performing on the center stage. So do you think that comes into play these few weeks or maybe the remaining of the season? Uh, because on the other hand, there are play- players who spend their lifetime on an outside court and when they get their moment, sometimes they can falter because of the aura of the arena, more than 15,000 watching, playing a legend. How does that equate if a match gets complicated? I know it's a very hypothetical view, but who gains and who whose impact is neutralized with no fans? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think it's probably one of the most important um, aspects of the return to the tour. You know, one of my colleagues made a good point last week, and I, and I think in many ways nailed it. I think generally the lack of fans is going to be a leveler. I think in many ways it's going to provide a leveler. I think if you're top five, top ten in the world, you're walking out onto Arthur Ashe, centre court, whatever it is, full house, um, for a lower-ranked player, that has to take a little bit of getting used to. There has to be that sort of intimidation factor of the arena. Yes, you can spin it around the other way and say they have nothing to lose, but I think in pressure moments, key stages of sets, when you've got a huge atmosphere, a cauldron, as I like to call it, it's not going to be there. And I, and I think for the lower-ranked players, that is going to be a huge help. I really do. I think it's going to be a huge help. I don't think the all the pressure that comes with that, the additional uh, the pressure, the burden, the, 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 the sort of noise that's coming from around you, it's just not going to be there. And, and I think that's going to provide um, much... I think it's going to take the pressure off. I really do. I think it's going to take the pressure off the lower-ranked players and, and the players who haven't always been used to that. Because for me, I, I just think, you know, if you're facing Novak or, or on Arthur Ashe Stadium in, in front of 20,000 fans and you're 5-0 in the fifth and there's no one there, again, I, I've never been in that situation, so I can only talk from how I, how I view it. I think, for me... Uh, the lesser mortals, if we can call them that, are, are going to feel like there isn't so much on the line. There isn't so much for them to, to fear. That, that there isn't so much uh, in terms of moving on to the next stage and, and, and the big picture. It's just another tennis match. And, yeah. and I really feel that, I really do feel that that could be the case. Whether that pans out that way, uh, time will tell. But I think the, the, the kind of, the X factors, if you like, of what it's like to be, uh, in these kind of melting pots of these big stadiums is just not going to be there. And I think that's going to be the fascinating aspect, whether it provides some sort of level playing field uh, for which these, you know, the, just the, the players that aren't used to it quite so much or are going to be able to feed off a little more. And that's potentially, I, that for me, I think is one of the most interesting aspects of the next three weeks. How, you know, are we going to see more upsets because of that situation, because of that scenario, um, because they're just, you know, they are more, they're just more accustomed to the environment they're going to be playing in. Absolutely. In total agreement here. And I'd be intrigued to see how the lower ranked player embraces this situation or moment, because it's going to reminisce pretty similar to, you know, their well-being or or their, uh, how they go about their business on the tour, maybe not in slams where they're playing on an outside court and not many people watching. So yeah, that's going to be the great equalizer. So let's mm. stick with Lexington for one more question here. Mm. Uh, Serena Williams, you know, whatever she does, one of the biggest attractions in the game um, is microanalyze. Uh, of course, everybody knew coming into this, uh, no one has played anything. So h- how good uh, did she look and was there any rust? 
should she have won the match she lost? I mean, your, your account of the week she had in Lexington. I, mean, I think Shelby Rogers, I think we need to give quite a lot of credit to Shelby Rogers uh, just initially who beat Serena. I think she's one of the few players that can actually match Serena in terms of off the ground, pure pace off the ground. She has one. She has a huge forehand. She can push Serena back. She has the ability to get three points off the serve, which is crucial, obviously, against Serena. Specifically with Serena, um, I thought she looked physically good, I have to say. It's always tough. You know, we're judging from the outside. We're doing it remotely, so we're not, we're not there. So it's, it's always tough to kind of get the, the real feel. But I thought she looked, for the most part, pretty good. Um, you know, going, obviously, to play the Western Southern Open, the, the key for them is, as they have tried to establish, is getting more matches. That's why she went to Lexington. They want to get more matches prior to, to playing the, the major. Um, but it's, you know, for me... I just, even though there are a lot of women who are not playing, I think it's, is it five or six of the top 10 now that are out? Five of the top 10, maybe. I think it's, it's not, you know, it's just not going to get any easier for Serena, for me, in terms of this, this pursuit. Patrick Moratoglu, I think, came up with a great quote the other day saying that the most pressure anyone will feel uh, will be the, the, the most pressure match in history, which will be obviously to, to tie Margaret's court record and, and whether she's, whether that has got to her over the last sort of two or three times that she's failed to show up in the major finals. Um, you know, I think it has to have played a part. So it's not going to get any easier, is it? You know, that's obvious. At her age, with time running out, unquestionably, there's a lot of young talent out there in the women's game, as we both know. And, 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 and it's not... And, and, and no doubt, Saki, 10 years ago players played the Williams sisters and they were too loved down before they started. And that's just not the case anymore. It's simply not the case anymore. They don't hold, they don't hold the fear factor that they had a handful of years ago. Um, I was talking to Daniela Hansikova last week about this. She obviously played Serena, I think 10 or 10 or 11 times. And she was saying the same thing, you know, in the early days, she used to go on court really didn't thinking she had a whole lot of chance to win. But nowadays it's a completely different story. The younger players, just don't have that don't have that baggage necessarily against her um and there's no they, they there's that much more belief that they can beat beat the Williams sisters specifically Serena so Serena looked good I wouldn't say she was outstanding last week um but I think you also have to give credit to Shelby Rogers who played a high level match sure and and, and again you know, you unpacked that beautifully but I would also give my two cents here I think that's a downside or maybe one of the features if not downside of longevity because Serena is into like a different decade now and she's uh, she started when Graf was still playing, and now she's playing all the newcomers. So I guess that that is part and package. If the longer you stay, you know uh, your impact and oh. your challenges will vary. Sure. So so let's talk about briefly about the UTS experiment that was done. Uh, anything mm. tennis can take from that as a setup uh, for the future? You think tennis is good the way it is? Uh, your views on that? Oh man, that's that's a, this this could I mean this could be a long-winded answer because you know. <laughs> If I'm honest, I probably do lean as a having been in this sport 30 years plus. I do lean towards being a little bit more conservative in terms of where we're at right now. I think the one thing I would point out with the UTS is that Patrick Moratoglu, as we both know, is a guy who uh, clearly is an innovator, a very confident man, and he has always said that the UTS was not there to replace tennis, but to work side by side with tennis. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's never really felt like the UTS um, should be taking over tennis. That was never the aim. The aim from his point of view was to um, coexist. So the UTS to coexist with the current form of tennis. He always felt that, you know, the audience was too old, whatever. We've all heard that before. So, 
Listen, I'm going to be honest, I didn't see tons of it. I, if I'm absolutely honest with you, the little bits I did see certainly seemed exciting. Um, I think the players were into it. I think they enjoyed uh, things freshening up a, a little bit. <sighs> Honestly, I, I would, I would, for me to comment with any kind of authority, I would have had to watch more of it. I, I like the idea. I like the changes. I like the innovation. And there's, and there's no doubt, you know, we, tennis has not evolved like other sports have. Um, you know, I, I like obviously the next gen finals in Milan. I thought that was a great tournament over the last couple of years. They've done a really nice job of just trying to drip feed some ideas in there. I think this was less drip feed and more kind of jumping at the deep end, wasn't it? In terms of what he produced, because it was a completely different format. Um, yeah, I mean, again, am I, was I a huge fan of it? Probably not. Um, but again, I, I'm all for kind of trying different things um, and, and mixing it around. I, I, the thing I struggle with a, a little bit, and maybe maybe I'm not seeing the big picture, is you know there are a lot of doomsday merchants with regards to professional tennis in terms of talking about how we need to evolve, we need to innovate, we're losing the audience. But yet at the same time, the numbers don't really reflect that because all four majors last year, I think, had the biggest crowds ever. Yes, there's more capacity, so we have to consider that. Television figures, I, I believe, are up virtually across the board for the, both the men and women. So I don't, you know, everything from my perspective points to tennis moving in the right direction. And yet, at the same time, he's obviously trying to bring in a younger audience, which I do understand as well. That's, it's, it's clearly very important we bring in the younger audience. But yeah, I, th- I think, I think as, a, as an event that could coexist with tennis, you know, he has to now moving forward, find a place in the calendar for it to work. Because if we do have a full calendar in 2021, where, where are we going to have the UTS? Are we just going to have the, the odd week here or there? Is it going to be in December, which I guess would be a pretty good idea because December in Nice is quite, is quite friendly weather-wise down there. Um, but, you know, Patrick is, is a guy that um, doesn't lack confidence and, and, is, and is very keen to try different things. And I, and I fully respect that. Yeah, definitely. And innovation is something that needs to be experimented. But I'm also like you, same generation, a little conservative. I don't think the sport is as broken, at least the structure, you know, how the game is played. Uh, hmm. Maybe maybe the governance, that's a different topic. And I also would like to add my uh, experience as a fan, because in the last hmm. decade or so on the men's side, the golden era with the big three and Andy Murray, uh, I, I speak to a lot of uh, uh, fans who are casual tennis fans. They play tennis, but they don't watch tennis. And their main window is the major. And even yeah. some of the other sports fans who are into baseball or football, they only watch Wimbledon and US Open final. Never ever have I heard someone say, oh man, that five-setter was boring. So I just sure. don't get that. If a casual fan, I don't know their age, but if they're getting into Djokovic or Federer playing deep into the fifth, they are not watching, with all due respect, Cincinnati or Canada Masters. That's mainly yeah. for the tennis fans. So that argument about the younger generation, I don't have the stats, but I think that's, I don't know whoever started this. Maybe there's a different vision. Maybe the TV element is there because there's no end time in tennis. That part I get maybe for the TV, you know, management of time slot, that's an issue. But just by saying the sport is not getting any younger, because like you said, data, or at least the fans suggest otherwise, because if you look at the casual pulse of the sport, the action at the majors has been just terrific. This triage, of Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, the rivalries are epic. The matches are brilliant, and, I, I, and we all know we all know those people in our lives who are not tennis fans, but they talk about the Wimbledon final and the U.S. Open final the day after, and that is a big indication that that five set 
system is not broken. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely with you. I'm completely yeah. with you, Saki. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, again, we could discuss this all day long, but I think possibly if we're just looking overall, you know, could the calendar, could the tennis calendar be trimmed down a little bit to kind of really focus on those bigger events? Maybe longer term. Are there too many tournaments on a normal year? Again, we have to, we have an ecosystem we have to feed. So that has to be considered, but are there too many sort of two fifties to the smaller events? Maybe, you know, in order just to sort of, is that watering down the, the ATP product a little bit? I don't know. I think the tour have done a phenomenal job with the masters series, the super nines back in my day when I was growing up, I think the masters 1000s as a brand have been unbelievable. I mean, Again, I think if you're asking just a general tennis fan to name all nine masters, I'm pretty sure they could name it straight away if they follow tennis. And I think that says it all. You know, I think the women's tour has definitely suffered with that. It's too higgledy-piggledy, the women's tour, the premier fires and all the mandatory, you know, the men's tour is structured very well indeed below the majors. You know, we have the nine masters. It's very clear, I think, to your average tennis fan, the structure of the ATP tour. And I think that's to their credit. Yeah, maybe tennis needs to experiment. Again, this is not what I had in mind, but since you are going there, I would just say maybe they should have a year-end championship for the Challenger Tour and maybe promote some of those eight guys and give them yeah. you know, some wild cards where they you know, may not qualify on the ranking cutoff. Maybe they should just get looks at the 500 or 250 main draws, something like that to popularize the second tier, which we all agree needs sure. a lot more support. Because, you know, making money as a tennis professional is a little harder than playing, say, a soccer league or a basketball league. But again, that's Absolutely. a discussion for another day. So yep. you were talking about the Battle of the Brits. You were at the venue. So how great was that event to bring some of the new names onto the stage? And can this be a recurring event? I mean, what is the feedback? Well, I think British tennis, again, purely talking from a, that perspective, probably over the, the years has been a little bit fractured in terms of not being quite so much cohesion among the players. Uh, I think the men have got a really good group now, certainly over here in Great Britain. We've got obviously Andy leading from the front. What he's done is just phenomenal. Um, and then obviously everyone backing up. We've got Dan Evans, Cam Norrie, Kyle Edmund, all these guys. Excellent event in London. The, the initial one was eight men, top eight men. Very, very well. Done. Excellent tournament. The guys are very close. So there was tremendous competition on the court, but off the court, they're all having good banter. Uh, lots of laughs you know, behind the scenes, which was great. Uh, and then the team event was actually to my surprise, even better. You know, we had uh, 12 players on each team, men and women. Um, again, a full week of tennis uh, down at Roehampton. I mean, there was so much sledging. You couldn't believe what was going on from the side side of the court. I mean, it was just mind-blowing. And you had Andy Murray coming onto court and, you know, giving these guys all sorts, girls all sorts of abuse from the side of the court. All friendly, of course, all done in a, in a joking way. But that was great. I think the players benefited a lot from that. Uh, we've we've been lucky over here as well. We've had a UK Pro Series just being put on at St George's Hill, which is a very famous club in Surrey. Uh, they had uh, six straight weeks of competition, which was again, you know, players are making good money. I think the twenty thousand pounds was the winner's check at the weekend. So, you know, the, the ironic thing about the whole pandemic actually is that for British tennis players the higher level ones, they've actually been able to, to sustain a good income over the last sort of 12 weeks or so, a really good income. The British tour events here have had a lot more money behind them. This is something we never had before. So, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And I think players like Liam Brody, who you may or may not know, who's ranked 200 in the world, all these guys have actually made some good money over the last few weeks. It's not improved their world ranking, which probably in the big picture they want to do. But, 
you know, as he kind of said the other day, I'm a tennis professional. So my idea of, for me is actually making money and he's been able to make some good money. And, and I think the battle of the Brits was, a, was just both events were, were competed at such a high standard. The, the intensity of the matches was uh, effectively as good as it gets. Um, really, really good. I really enjoyed both of them. The team event was, was great. Uh, good doubles, good mixed doubles. They threw everybody in. We had a 17-year-old Emma Radu Kanu playing with, you know, Joe Salisbury, the Australian Open champion. We had it was a real good mix. And I think from a British tennis point of view, I think it really bonded everyone together. Um, and it can only have done it. Can only have done it a lot of good. And you're right. Even citing the example of Liam Brody, money goes a long way in the sport, especially if you're ranked in the you know close to 200 neighbourhood. That money can, you know, help you prolong your career. You can, you know, just organize and arrange your calendar better. So, yeah, that's, it's a win-win for, it looks like, for the, for the British tennis players. Yeah. So, moving on to the, this action-packed uh, two tournaments that are coming. So, usually top players don't play the week prior unless someone's coming from injury or, you know, needed some, 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 some action on the court. Usually, they use that week before the major to fine-tune their games. And how will that come into play? As uh, I know, you, you already mentioned players are hungry, they're ready to go. This is unprecedented, five months of no you know, competitive matches. So there's a lot at stake. So Cincinnati U.S. Open, that's like three weeks of top flight tennis. If you're, if you're Novak Djokovic, you have to just play some sublime tennis and sustain it for 21 days. Not that he hasn't done it before, but I don't think this is your usual choice of schedule in, in a normal year. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see upsets. Going back to a little bit what we said earlier on, in terms of the level playing field, I think there could easily be, and I'd take Lexington, for example, I think we had, was it one seed left in the last eight? Now, obviously, it's probably a little more unpredictable, but it wouldn't be a huge surprise at all to me to see, uh, certainly the first week uh, in, in, of the Western and Southern Open, we, uh, some new names coming through, some, some guys that uh, you know, are causing some upsets with the older guys, you know, perhaps not having had necessarily as many matches or whatever it may be, just being caught cold a little bit. So there's that factor definitely comes into play. Um, Fitness-wise, you know, again, how much how much have players been doing over the last couple of months? How much have they been able to prep for New York? And also, how are they going to, you know, there's also the intangibles of how are they going to adapt mentally to the challenges of what they're facing in New York because it's become a very, very simple lifestyle for them all of a sudden. You know, there's nowhere to go. They can't go anywhere. They've got to come back to the hotel. You know, how are they going to deal with that mentally as well? Because it is a different challenge. You, you, can't, you can't go and, you know, go out for a meal anywhere or go and release or just get a change of scenery. You know, that's, that's a very, I think that could be an important factor as to how players cope with that mentally on the court because, you know, it's not easy. You, you're not you're not getting different looks at many different things. So you're going to have to be very, very focused within that particular bubble, as they've called it over there. It's a different way of living, isn't it? It's a different way of life for everyone, but specifically for those in New York, uh, I think that's going to present challenges. So honestly, I, 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 I think we could easily see a fair few upsets, certainly on that first week. Change of surface as well. Let's not forget that. The US Open or the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre have put down a new surface this year. I think it's... Uh, the, the lay cold, isn't it? They put down how different that is going to be. I, I don't know. Again, I haven't heard too much from on site so far, but we're playing on a different surface uh, there as well. So there's a number of intangibles, I think, to, to work with. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully players, as you say, will be raring to go and, and certainly very hungry to get out there and compete again. Absolutely. So let's uh, get into some sort of a 
not exactly predictions because we don't have draws in front of us yet. But uh, mm. we already talked about uh, the no crowds being an equalizer, uh, new you know new schedule playing a Masters 1000 prior to a major. So all this can cause upsets. So if there is going to be a new winner, say hypothetical, at the U.S. Open on the men's side, of course Novak is the big favorite till some you know till someone proves it otherwise. What is the short list of players that you are looking if potentially they can make this breakthrough? I think Dominic team is very high on my list. I think, um, let's not forget how well he's been playing over the last, let's take the last four months away, but let's just remember the last 12 months prior to from March, basically all the way through to March 2019. He would be very, very high on my list. I think he's ready, you know, 26 years of age, absolutely in the prime of where he's at. I think his game is well-rounded now, very well suited again to playing on a hard court. So I think if the conditions aren't too quick, and, and, you know, they can be lively in New York. Let's not forget that. I think, yes, he won the Indian Wells, but I think conditions are a bit more bouncier. Perhaps they're a bit more lively um, in, in New York. So Dominic team would be very, very high on my list. Uh, interesting, Daniel Medvedev is an interesting one. I think probably the most low-key uh, of all the kind of top 10 maybe during lockdown. I mean, has anyone heard anything from Daniel Medvedev? I mean, we've seen the odd bit here and there on social media, but a guy who's very much kept himself to himself. So I'll be fascinated to see what Daniel brings out. Uh, you know, how much... You know, players have never had this kind of four or five month period, have they? We saw Venus obviously changing her serve last week. Are, the, are players going to look to have you know, changed anything? Are they going to be bringing anything else to the game? Um, so, yeah, I think those those two are of interest. Then I've got, you know, Andre Rublev was a guy I thought was in obviously in great form at the start of the year, you know, winning those back-to-back events. Uh, being nice to see Rublev come out and, and sort of bring that on. Karen Hashinov, uh, you know, is, a, is another guy who didn't have such a good year last year, but I thought we saw good signs from him back in January, February. So, you know, I think these are the sort of four or five names that I'd be looking at. And then, of course... You know, the, the, of the Canadian crop, Felix Auger-Aliassime, we saw him play in, in uh, the UTS, didn't we, in the, in the last round of the UTS there. I think if he can just tidy that second serve up, those serve issues he has, if they've been kind of just the edges have been, rough edges have been sorted out in his game, for me, he's a major winner, for sure. I, I really believe that. I think in, in a couple of years' time, I think we're going to see him win majors. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I think those guys are all, for me, going to be contending. You know, I guess the interesting thing will be as well, if they don't have a good first week, how much that impacts on the US Open? Because if they've had one match, one singles match going into New York, are they going to be able to play themselves into form? Is there going to be enough time in New York to play themselves into form? Again, all these questions will, will, will be answered, I guess, in a couple of weeks. Uh, no, no doubt. In that, that first week in, of Cincinnati, uh, you know, played on the flushing courts will be huge, uh, like you mentioned. Let's talk about Sasha Zverev. We've spoken about him at length in the previous podcast when you were there, and you said we have to be patient with these young guys, and he's still very young. So, what is your uh, uh, what's your radar of his progress and uh, David Ferrer coming in on board? How does that partnership again? Early days, no one know how that's going to play out, but he's someone. Sasha has you know his willingness to experiment with these big name coaches to me indicates how badly he wants to succeed. Of course, there are some glaring. Uh, not flaws, but glaring adjustments, even at fan level, people say he plays way too far, has you know great power, should maybe come in with user's height. So unpack Zverev. Uh, do you want to unpack it any differently than he did a couple of years ago? Not that you remember, but you had a lot of faith in his talk. Should we still keep the faith? Yeah, I mean, I think fame came pretty quickly. 
to Sasha. You know, he, I think sometimes we perhaps underestimate how much is on these guys' shoulders at 19 years of age, at 20 years of age. Yes, he has good family around him. He's got a good structure around him. But we also have to just look, take a step back sometimes. And when he won the World Tour Finals, there was, you know, much like Stefano Tsitsipas last year, there was this expectations that winning a major was going to be next. Um, there's, you know, there's so much pressure on these guys to perform. There's so many things going on around them. There's so many distractions around them that can just, I think, sometimes you know, let the eyes wander a little bit. And I do think that maybe happened to Sasha. I, I, whether he got, there was clearly stuff going on with the agent that didn't need to be happening a year ago. That was a, that was a distraction to him. You know, these guys have enough going on on court without having to worry about, I think, any problems with lawsuits and everything else that's happening on off court. So I think we have to understand that. He's 22 years of age now. Um, he has one of the biggest games in men's tennis, unquestionably. Does he sit too deep? He, Probably yes, but he also has pretty big swings on him as well. So we have to, you know, you, it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, okay, uh, he should be moving three foot inside the baseline. Or yes, but it's going to take a little bit of modifying from the perspective of his game as well. And, you know, again, I've never played at that level, but having, you know, I, from everything I can understand and, and, and speak to players over the years, having gathered information, is a lot of these top players are very stubborn. You know, when he won the World Tour Finals, why is someone telling him that he needs to move two feet inside the baseline? He's saying, well, hold on, I've just won the, effectively the fifth major. I've, my game's good enough. So that takes a bit of adjusting to, I think, as well. You know, David Ferrer, is this going to be a, a golden partnership? Well, there have been plenty of times over the years where a former player's come in and it's made no difference whatsoever. But clearly Ferrer commands a level of respect, probably the highest level of respect among his peers of anyone of the last generation outside of the big three, big four, because of what he brought to a tennis court. So different, probably a slightly different sort of game. Um, but Ferrer was a guy that, you know, did come in a lot. You know, he used his opportunities to come forward when they were there. Um, Communication is everything, obviously. You know, look at, let's not forget he was only with one Carlos Ferrero two years ago. So there's not a huge difference between Ferrero and Ferrero in terms of their attitudes and, and their way of life. In fact, they're probably best, well, one of the best friends on tour. So, I, I, you know, I think sometimes we're, perhaps we expect a miracle, a miracle partnership to suddenly work. Might just be that Sasha's actually ready to listen to the information this time compared to maybe where he was a couple of years ago. Again, the flaws in the game. We talked about it with Felix a little bit. The flaws in the game are obviously the second serve. Can he tidy that up a little bit? Does he have the opportunity to move forwards and finish points off at the net? Yes, he does. A lot more than he, than he has done. You know, he still has his opportunities. But, you know, getting over the line at, at majors. And, and also, I think we also have to wonder what this break has done for players in terms of just thinking time. Now, I know Sasha got a lot of criticism for the way he behaved in sort of May and June when he was going out and, and not necessarily from what we understand following the guidelines. But, you know, I can only hope as well that a fair few of these players have had time to consider, to think, to take a step back and actually realise where they are what they have on the line and, and, and maybe that will just focus a little bit more on in terms of kind of the week in week out tennis tour. And you are absolutely, I think, uh, right there with a lot of things regarding Zverev. And another thing, even with Sitsipas, some of these uh, social media accounts and how close this brings the players in this day and age to their fans and the supporters is unique. And, and this also gives us more of an opportunity because not a beat is being missed. And I'm not just talking about COVID, I'm taking you know, the big picture into account. 
And uh, for example, when Becker was, you know, the talk of the town 30 years ago when he became a global superstar, his weekly progress was reported through newspapers and a lot of things were omitted and a lot of things were not. And just like any private life should be respected. So I guess uh, that's the bubble we live in, even beyond and pre-COVID, that all these uh, global young superstars were, who supposedly are ready to take over the big three, but are not there yet game-wise. And then uh, the, the fan expectations grow because you know, there's so much visibility into their day-to-day lives. And then we keep comparing them to the legends. That being said, Nick, do you think this uh, younger crop, is there a mental uh, setup because there's not many f- best of five set matches outside of slam? So you think this generation is taking a longer time to learn that craft? Is that craft big different uh, when, it, when, when the stakes are high at the biggest arenas? Your view on, you know, these, uh, especially with Zverev, as a, as a catalyst, people think he is not tough to win five setters or he loses too many of them to non-fancied players. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a tough one. I, I, honestly, uh, I'm not 100% sure whether the majors, obviously the majors provide a different challenge, but whether the younger players are suffering because of that. I heard a debate the other day with regards to, you know, do we feel the top four players have, have kind of... I think someone was asking effectively whether they felt that the younger generation were not actually good enough. If Roger Federer was asked honestly whether he felt the younger generation were not good enough, whether he would actually say yes rather than kind of playing the political card sometimes that he does. My own opinion on that, having been lucky to be courtside for 15 years pretty much of these top guys, is that these four guys that we've been watching over the last 10 years are so unique. They have, been, they have set the bar so high in terms of their consistency that... I don't. I simply don't think anyone else has been good enough. That that is going to change inevitably. Um, I think in the going down the line. I think you know if we were to have a conversation in five, ten years' time, I think the distribution of prizes, the top prizes, is going to be much more spread around. I really do. I don't think we're going to have any. I think you know Federer has obviously got a year, maybe a year max. Novak maybe a couple of years. I, I do honestly believe. I think in in four or five years' time, when we look at the major winners, we'll have a much more varied spread of winners. I just don't see how this dominance can can continue. I, I think these guys have been so unique in terms of pushing each other, these top three or four guys, chasing these additional majors, these extra goals to become the greatest of all time. That for me, I, I, I don't see that continuing. To answer your question directly, honestly, I, I'm not 100% sure whether whether the, the majors have been too tough for the younger guys. Since the has obviously been pretty close, semis of Australia, um, teams getting closer, clearly. And yes, it, it probably is a, an art that takes a little bit longer to adjust and experience comes into play, doesn't it, as well? The more times you go to Flushing Meadows, the more times you go to Roland Garros and Wimbledon, the more experience you're obviously picking up. So... Yeah, I, I think um, I think the younger guys are, are definitely getting closer. Um, Denis Shapovalov, someone we haven't even talked about, isn't it, as well? What a big game he has. Uh, probably over five sets. Again, a guy that needs to just learn to rein it in sometimes. I think we saw that at the end of last year with him. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a fascinating time in men's tennis, isn't it? Because the older... Clearly, this pandemic, you know, who who has it had a greater impact on? Well, I think the pandemic as a whole has limited the opportunities of the older guys, isn't it? You know, if you're 33 years of age and you've not been able to play Wimbledon this year, you may have lost a third of your Wimbledons left. You may only have two left, whereas the younger guys have got 10, 15, maybe Wimbledons in them. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a fascinating side for me as well. You know, 
whether or not it whether or not the younger or the older generation come out better or worse off this is clearly time if you're in your early 30s is that much more limited and you have just lost effectively half a year of your career so the pressure might be on a little bit more on those older guys now mm. all right so last couple of questions before we wrap this up and this is going to be a good segue from the younger and older example you've cited so in your view uh this uh long break, you know, again, you know, very unusual break for five months, you know, this is like five times in a regular off season, which age group will have its work cut out? You know, the, the veterans, Djokovic, Verdasco, Nadal, Monfils, Federer, of course, taking, you know, he's skipping the remaining of the year because to, to rehab, but that you think the veterans will have a hard time or will the Sitsipas, Zverev and Shapoval of this group uh, will have a harder time to come back and find its stride? Uh, if I had to put my house on it, and I, I, if I'm honest, I probably have switched my, changed my mind a little bit over the last couple of months, just listening to different things. I probably think it's going to be tougher on the older generation for the reason I just gave. I think that, you know, if you are in your early 30s, mid 30s, you have effectively had, you know, you've got two more years left on tour. You've suddenly lost a quarter of what you you potentially had to work with. And I think for the younger guys, there isn't so much pressure. They can come in and know that uh, they have got a good decade ahead of them to play. If you're 21, 22, there's not there's no big sweat. Yeah, we lost six months, but you know what? We're good to go again at the US Open. We're ready to go. So I don't know. I, I, I think, to be honest, I think that factor is one. But I think going back to the earlier conversation we had with regards to the atmosphere and the lack of atmosphere and, and the, the, the environment that's going to be created with no crowd. For me, that's the most interesting part of what we're going to see over the next six weeks. How is that going to impact in terms of the, the upsets going forward? Is it going to, is it going to be able to just be of benefit to the players who necessarily have not been used to playing on those bigger courts in that environment a bit more? And for me, that is going to be the most fascinating side, I think, of watching over the next month. All right. Uh, fair enough. And last but not the least, this is not your, again, you know, sound like a broken record, but not your usual calendar. Usually after Wimbledon, there's a brief, uh, you know, uh, action in Europe where there's clay as a chosen surface. And a lot of times fans criticize why is Fonini staying and playing Keith Spiel and not coming playing Washington or vice versa. But this time it's the other way around. All these guys who are the U.S. Open will fly across the pond back to play, you know, the clay and, and, and the French Open. So how much of that transition is going to be? Of course, tennis players change surfaces. Someone would say it should not be a big deal, but this is a big deal because, you know, what, three weeks after U.S. Open is the French Open? I mean, how big of an adjustment is that for, say, Novak and some of these guys, Sasha and Dominic, when, they, you know, when they're done with uh, New York and they start preparing in Madrid and in Paris? I think, it's, I think it's big. I think it's a big adjustment. But at the same time, I do also think that players will be so ready to go, so keen to get back out and compete. They'll be so hungry for it that I think that might counter the argument a little bit. A lot depends, obviously, on how far they go in New York. If you're losing in week one, you're coming back to Europe, you've got a good week, 10 days to prepare um, to, to get on the clay. Let's not forget, we go from, you know, we, the change of surface happens, all right, not quite as drastically as it is here, but change of surface does happen fairly regularly on the tour anyway. So, you know, going from clay to grass to hard all happens within a six-week period, doesn't it, in the summer usually. So, yes, it's going to be a change. Um, 
I think, you know, physically, I think the, the, the strength and conditioning coaches are going to have a lot of work to do in terms of just getting the bodies ready. And it looks like as well, Sakib, now that players are making decisions, you know, in terms of some players necessarily will not go to New York and will focus purely on the clay. We've seen it probably obviously with Rafa. We've seen it with a couple of other players already having made that decision. So, you know, listen, going, going from hard to clay in terms of the, the change of surface, how big is it? Yes, of course, it's a big, big change, but it's not like going from clay to grass where it's a completely different change, you know, the, 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 in terms of the ball bounce and everything else. And I think we also have to look at climatic conditions as well. Saki, you know, this is something that, again, we don't know. Paris in the, in the, in the early autumn could be a significantly cooler. That could slow down the conditions as well. So there's a lot of things that come into play, uh, but, I, but I do think uh, clearly the change is a big one, but at the same time, I think players are going to be so hungry to compete that if they can get a couple of clay matches under their belt, then I think they'll be ready to go. All right, so I lied. There's one more. Uh, uh, I thought I'm done, but Federer, according to you now, uh, in mm. the absolute twilight of his career, not expected, you know, this is going to be the year, but at his age, uh, how big of an adjustment will it be to come back to actual tennis? I'm sure his team is the world best. You know, he's hired some of the best professionals and they'll do their best job to get in shape. But again, after all the mileage, uh, what are going to be his challenges come Australia, if Australian Open does take place? Man, I'm so reluctant to write that guy off. (laughs) You know, I have been here before. We've all been here before. For me, a guy who was, for the last 20 years, always given so little away in terms of what he's doing off-court, Sakib. No one really has ever got a feel. Yes, Pierre Paganini has always been given a lot of credit, but we don't know too much in terms of what Roger does behind the scenes. You know, he keeps that very close, very guarded. So at 39 years of age, coming back to play in Australia, if the desire is still there, I think he'll still be tough to beat, unquestionably, because of the way he plays Sackett, because of the because of the unique style of which he plays. No one takes the ball as early as Roger. You know, he's gone through his career getting older and older, but at the same time taking the ball more and more on the rise and more and more early in the court. So, you know, no one plays like Roger does. It's just such a unique brand of tennis. And if he still has the physical attributes to be able to compete that way, certainly over the best of three sets, uh, I'm not going to be too concerned about it but again we don't know how the body's held up after the recovery we don't know how much uh, he's going to be able to recover fully is he going to be at 100% come the start of next year I think if he is 100% at the start of next year I'm still putting him in the mix I really am you know yes it seems illogical at nearly 40 years of age uh, but I think if if the if if he can maintain his position in the top 10 I still think he'll be dangerous well, on that note, I think we covered everything I had in mind. And as usual, Nick, thanks for coming on the show. I'm walking away a lot more informed. Hopefully the listeners will enjoy this. Uh, it's always a pleasure and all the best to the family. Pleasure. Thanks, Saki.